You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. They head that way. We are going to jump back into the book of Job. So if you're new with us, we are working our way through the entire Bible. Sometime this year, we're going to end the Old Testament. Great job. You guys have done so well. Tag. Tag, yeah. Terry's on her way. I like how the, the people that are staying are right in the middle for me. This is great. I have a little bit side to side, but mostly the middle. Um, so we are working through wisdom literature right now, and it's a really interesting part of the Bible. It's interesting to read because it doesn't always make sense. It can be really confusing, like basically the rest of the book. Um, but wisdom literature was specifically written to wrestle with the big questions we have in life. Why does God exist? Does God exist? What is he like? Why is the world the way that it is? Why does suffering exist? Even if I do all the things that I'm supposed to do, why do bad things still happen to me? You know, those big questions that every generation asks because it happens to every person. And the Bible said, hey, we know you have those big questions. We're going to actually insert these three primary books of Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs to help you know how to wrestle with those big questions. I mean, God encourages us. He gives us a roadmap so that we can learn what it's like to walk through the hard things with him. And I'm reminded as we read wisdom literature that faith is not meant to be simple. I think we'd like that. I I mean, personally, I'm more analytical in my thought process. I would like things to be black and white. I want there to be a very easy way to understand the world, to understand God, to understand myself. I don't want to have to think about it too much because in the thinking about it, I realize that things can hurt. There are challenges that maybe don't always have answers and and nobody enjoys that gray area. But the reality is faith has a lot of gray area because faith with God is a friendship. It's a journey. We're not just supposed to check a box like I got my card from Blockbuster and I'm suddenly a Christian for the rest of my life and I don't have to do anything but renew it every once in a while. That would be easy, but it's not relationship, which is what God wants with us. He wants friendship. He wants companionship. He wants to know us and be known. And that means being able to wrestle because any good relationship, you're going to hit rocky parts where you're going to have to ask hard questions, do hard things, meet somebody in the middle of pain and really learn their heart through those dynamic moments. And that's what God invites us to. And he gives them the, gives us the wisdom books to help us when we find ourselves in those seasons. They're a good pastoral roadmap to say, this is how you navigate it. And so last week, Perla jumped all the way through Ecclesiastes, and you're welcome to go back on the podcast or wherever you listen to all the things, Facebook, YouTube, etc. And today, well, tomorrow, I have the timeline of Judah now. Everything was last year. Next Sunday, we're going to start the book of Proverbs, which will be my last message for until the summer. Um, But today I wanted to pause and actually go back to the book of Job, thanks to Matt. Because Matt had all these really good points that he made. And ironically, I started answering those questions and then the Holy Spirit took us on a slightly different trail. But the point is, Matt had some really good questions after my last message, some good points. And I thought, you know, we should, we should hang out here a little bit longer. And so the primary question, in case you missed that message, the primary question of the book of Job that the author is asking is, is God just and wise? Right? We, we read the whole of the book and we think, you know, that should be an easy question to, to answer. Yes, of course. But the reality and what Job's, the author of Job is looking into is he says, humans predominantly understand God based on the way that the, we see the world working. 
the primary way that we understand his character is by looking there and looking at our own life experiences. We may not think that's what we do, but the reality is if we are going to define God, that's how we're going to start. We're going to say, well, is God good? Well, I I don't know because there's suffering in the world. Is God just? Well, if that's true, Brittany, then why is there injustice that seems to go unchecked? So even if we don't think we do that, we ask those bigger questions because we're trying to understand God and we use the world and what's happening in it to figure it out. Israel called this the retribution principle where they said, if God's good, then good's always going to be rewarded and bad's always going to be punished. And Job was written to say that would be a really nice theory if it were so black and white, but that's not true. And he says the suffering of innocent people and the unchecked evil that exists in the world tells us that something is more complex about God or the world than we can really understand. And we need to take the time to wrestle with that. Because if we don't, it'll throw us into a crisis of faith, which is exactly what the book of Job shows us. That whole internal dynamic that we never like want to talk about with people when we're questioning is God real and all this stuff. Job just puts it right out on the page. All the things he's thinking, which is beautiful because it means that God's not afraid of us having questions about his, his character and, and what's going on. And interestingly, he says, you're going to have those moments where you have that crisis and I'm big enough to handle that. And so Job digs us through that. And what we come to, the conclusion, what God says himself is basically, I haven't designed this world to prevent suffering. It is part of the dynamic of a chaotic world. It would be nice if I had, but that's not how it's set up. There's still chaos in the world. That's why I gave you, humanity, the job of going out and bringing peace and stewarding things so that the chaos would go away. Instead, you just chose to join it, so it's here. And just because you encounter suffering doesn't mean that you've actually done anything to deserve it. There's a lot of reasons why suffering happens. It could be our own bad choices. It could be someone else's bad choices. It could be something we'll never be able to comprehend. And God says, that's the reality of the gray area that you have to wrestle with and come to grips with. Because if you're going to live in this complex world, you have to understand you're not going to understand it all of the time. Suffering is part of our human experience. And so, thanks God. It's not like the most comforting question all the time, except the one thing it does tell us is that God's not throwing suffering at us because he's trying to teach us a lesson or do something. It's not a training tool. It just exists in this world. And so what the author invites us to, what Job actually models, is embracing a posture of trust and confidence in God's goodness, in his character, In the fact that even though the world is complex, his character is very clear and very steadily good and loving and compassionate and for us. And that becomes the anchor point that we need to live in a complex world where things happen that we don't always understand. He says, I will be your safety point. Jesus says the solid rock. I will be the area that you live, that you dwell hidden in me that will allow you to survive when everything goes haywire in your life. Because I don't want it to go haywire, but the reality is that is what's going to happen in this big and broken world. And Job himself lands back in that place of agreeing with God. He says in 42 verses 5 and 6, I've only heard about you before, but now I've seen you or experienced you with my own eyes. And so I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Or to say, look, I'm sorry, I realized you're right. I am really little 
you're really big and good. And so I'm going to trust you. I'm going to choose to put my confidence in you. And he says this while his life is still a mess. His business is gone. His family has been, his, all of his kids have died. His wife has basically left him and he's sick. He's got like this chronic illness of boils. And so there's nothing good happening in Job's life when he says that. And instead of trying to be angry or understand the suffering, he says, God, it's too big for me, but you are, you're good. You're consistent. And so if I'm going to survive this, I'm just going to sit before you because that's the safest place for me to dwell. And the author's basically saying, it'll serve all of us better than being agitated, angry, frustrated, or overwhelmed if we can learn to put ourselves in that place of trust and confidence with God as well. If we can learn to take a seat in front of him the way that Job does. And so I want to ask that question this morning. I want to move us away from why is there suffering in the world, because we answered that a few weeks ago, and really ask the question that is on I'm going to just be bold and say everyone's heart. Maybe, maybe you haven't asked this recently, but how can I trust God when I am suffering? I think that's a valid question. I think it's one God invites us to look at in the book of Job. And I think it's one that if we can answer it in a way that gives us some foundation, we will have a safe place to go and live when our life becomes a mess. So let's, let's do that today. Jesus, let's do that with you today. Holy Spirit, would you bring illumination to your text? And I pray that for every person here and online that you would show us the safe place that we can live with you that will protect us when our world is melting down. Show us that we can trust you when our world is melting down. In Jesus' name, amen. This doesn't have to be rhetorical because I think we've all asked these things, but I just want to kick us off with the question this morning. What do we ask about God when our world is going nuts? Your personal life or the greater world? What are some of the things you wonder or ask him? Why is it happening? Yeah, why? Absolutely. Why is this going on? Where are you? you? Yeah. Did you disappear? When will it stop? That's great, April. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see me? I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel invisible when suffering is just overwhelming my life. Anything else? Do you hear me? Yeah. Are my prayers just sitting in the room? Mm hmm. It's normal, guys. These are normal questions. Why can't we see you? Where'd you go? This is the reality of being a human being that lives in a world where suffering is prevalent and serves an almighty God. We want him to always fix the things that are going wrong. And that's not a bad thing. I think that's the way that kids look at their parents, right? If something breaks in our house, even if Bo broke it, he comes to Tim and I, you fix this? And sometimes we're like, this is not repairable. I don't know what you did. Do you have access to power tools that we don't know about? How is this toy this broken? Um, or my alarm clock the other day. I'm like, it's just, it's going in the garbage. But the reality is I think it's good that we have that expectation of God to fix things. I think that shows that we believe that he can and should. Um, but when we don't see him doing it in our timeline, that's where those questions and those doubts can start to drum up. 
And it's normal. It's normal for us to think that. Humanity has always thought that. We have so many evidences in Job. Um, in Job, he says, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? You know, he, he believes that God's literally turned his back on, on him, on Job, and says, you used to love me, and now you think I'm your enemy. And in Isaiah, we're reminded that when Israel heads to exile, they're saying things like, the Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. People think that way when, they, when their world is falling apart. So if you think that way, you're normal, it's okay, God's bigger than, than that, don't worry, he doesn't condemn you for feeling like that. But what I find fascinating and what I don't have time to fully explore this morning is that every time we see suffering in the book, every time we see suffering in the book, and I would challenge you to go and test me on this, we see a parallel track of God so Israel's suffering, individuals are suffering, and what we watch along the exact same trajectory of that is God showing up in those stories specifically described as a compassionate, caring, and present individual. He's constantly described as seeing, hearing, knowing, and responding to the pain of humanity, even if his response doesn't look the way that they want, even if it's not quite the solution or the timeline that they're hoping for. When Israel is, um, or Isaiah prophesies, he says, you're going to go into exile, and they're like, ha, 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 no, we're not. And he's like, ha, 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 yeah, you are. And you're going to say all these things when you get there because you just totally messed up. And they say the thing of like, oh, God, you've forgotten us. And God's response to that statement from Israel is never... Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she no longer feel love for the child she has born? Even if that were possible, I would not forget you. See, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. Always in my mind is a picture of Jerusalem's walls in ruins. And it's this reminder that God says, I am like this nurturing parent. I can't forget you in your suffering. I'm so sad that you made a horrible choice that blew up your life. But even though you did that, I will not forget my love and affection for you. I have literally written your name on my hands. I can't forget the chaos that you've created in your own life. Or one of my favorite stories from back in Genesis, where we hear about Hagar and her son Ishmael. And really, this is Sarai's fault. She like blew things up by telling her husband to sleep with somebody else. And again, the Bible's full of messes. And if you haven't read it, it's very scandalous. It's very interesting. It couldn't be on TV because it's not PG-13. But anyhow... Hagar runs away from Sarai because she's abusing her. She's become horrible to her. She's mistreating her. And God meets her in the middle of the wilderness. And he, said, he, fa- he says he found her beside the spring of water in the wilderness. And he says, go back to her and submit to her. But he's not just saying go back to the abuse. It's fine. He's not trying to gaslight her. He promises to her, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And then a few verses later, What he spoke to her, what God spoke to her in the middle of the wilderness there when she was running away and in pain gave her such hope and stability to go back that she said, she gave him another name. She said, you are the God who sees me. And ultimately she ends up actually having to flee permanently and go and start a new home. And God meets her again in the wilderness and he reaffirms the promise about making Ishmael this great and powerful nation. He says, I'm going to keep my hand on this child. It's not your fault, all this crazy stuff that happened to you. So I'm going to bless your son and take care of him and provide for you. 
And then Israel, when they're in Egypt, we read the story of them, and it's 400 years of slavery, 400 years of them crying out to God. We are enduring oppression and injustice, and it's not fair. Where are you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I thought you were supposed to be like our special friend, and here we are, we're stuck. And God says to them in Exodus 3, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. It's weird because the suffering is happening and it would be really awesome if God just immediately fixed it every time something went bad. But the reality is humans have free will. We have the decision to go and make a mess of ourselves. Other people have the decision to go and make a mess and that can impact us even if we've done nothing wrong. And God says, I am allowing you, you have my permission, you have free will to just do that because you're big kids, you can go and make those decisions. I am not going to abandon you in the chaos that has been created in this world. I hear you. I see you. I am broken by what you're going through and I am responding. It just may not be quite in the timeline that you're anticipating. And the reason that God does this so consistently is because he describes himself as compassionate. In fact, when he is getting to know Israel as a nation, he's brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. And they actually, it's funny, they make this promise relationship, which the closest thing we could envision is a marriage. So Israel says, we're only going to love you, God. We're totally for this relationship. We're all about you. And God says, great, I'm all about you. I'm going to bless you and take care of you. And I'm going to provide for you. And Israel immediately cheats on God. Immediately. Like, this is great. We're at the covenant promise. Bye. And they go off and they immediately build another God. They make an idol and they start worshiping them. And God's response in that is not like to rain down fire from heaven. There's a little bit of discipline that comes, but it's not that. And and interestingly, what he says to Moses before any of that conversation is, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. The first word he describes when Israel goes off and cheats on him, he says, I am a God of compassion. And it's the Hebrew root word rakum, which is related to the Hebrew word rahem, which means womb. It's right behind me. And it's not just a noun where you think of like an actual womb or uterus. Ooh, what a word to hear in church. <laughs> it's not Mother's Day, guys. Um, but God says, I rahum you. I am rahum. And what it, inv- what it evokes is this tenderness that a mother feels towards her child. And not just the like, oh, you're so cute, but it's the oh, it's 3 a.m. and we've been up six times and I haven't slept and I still feel tender affection for you because you need to eat and you're reliant on me to feed you. So let me pick you up and nurture you and take care of you. Or the tender care of, oh, you've just thrown up for the third time and not yet have you made it to a garbage can and so the carpet's stained, but I'm more concerned about you being sick and wanting to take care of and pick you up and nurture you. It's It's the sacrificial kind of love that parents, moms and dads make that say, you are my child and I don't always have to like the decisions you make. I am never going to stop loving you. 
I am tenaciously for you. I am steadfastly, I steadfastly love you. I am your biggest cheerleader, whether you recognize that or not. And by the time they get to be teenagers, they don't, but eventually hopefully they realize it. And I'm prepping myself because I did that to my mom and I'm like, ah, it's coming. (laughs) It's coming. But I see now that kind of persistent love that parents have. And God describes himself that way. He says, that's how I feel about Israel. That's how I feel about all of humanity. I created you. I can never forget you. I can never forget you. And when you are in pain, when you are hurting, I see it, I hear it, and I'm affected by your pain. God is affected by your suffering. It's not like he sits in heaven. He's like, oh, April's having a bad day. Eh. He's like, oh, sister, like I'm there, child. I'm, I, every day when you get up and you're like, it's going to be a good day. And then that memory of Sean pops and you're like, ooh, I got I to gotta keep picking up and going for my other two. God's with you physically in your home saying, I see this. And the picture I have is him like squeezing your hand, like we can do this together because God's heart is broken when our hearts are broken. When he sees things happening in the world, injustice, pain, chaos, he doesn't just pass it over like, look at what humans did again. They made a mess. He is compassion and his heart is broken. So he steps into those moments and he says, I weep with you. I grieve with you. I cry with you. I get angry about the injustice with you. And I am in the process of setting this right. It just may not happen to the speed or readiness. I will. Maybe at the end. I'm in a flow, April. <laughs> um, I'm not, my flow's gone. It's fine. No. Um, it may not always happen in the timeline that we anticipate it. And this goes back to the sticky wicket of suffering being complex that we talked about before. We just don't always understand why it takes the time it takes for our families to come back together or for injustice to be healed or for things to be brought back to a place of peace and shalom. But what we do know is that God's not absent to it. He is working on it, even if we can't see it, because he is compassion. This cannot be taken away from his character. It cannot be split. He doesn't like pick and choose either. He is always moving towards the restoration of humanity. That is who he is, and it is what he does. And this amplifies in our revelation of Jesus. We are told in Colossians that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, which means if you want to know what God is like, it's not always wise to look out the door, but you can always trust what it looks like when you look at Christ. Christ is the perfect picture of the invisible God, how he feels about everything from women to politics to justice to all the things all of it can be answered if we simply look at those first four books of the new testament the gospels and what's so fascinating to me about that is that what jesus says of himself is he says i only go about and do what i see the father doing so jesus is the perfect picture of god and everything he goes and does in his lifetime is what god is calling him to go and do He only follows that plan. And so that means that what we see Jesus, wow, that's very interesting, Logan. Um, So what we see him doing is always rooted in compassion. Read Matthew 9, 35 to 36 with me. 
It's a synopsis of Jesus's ministry. And it says, Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is the perfect picture of God, and he's about the perfect will of God, which means everything that Jesus did in his, that we are informed of, we don't have every day of his life written down, but everything that we get to see is him following the compassionate heart of God to step into people's brokenness, addictions, families that are broken up, people who are grieving, people who are oppressed by demons and separated from all of society, people who have chronic illnesses that are keeping them from being able to have physical affection and a hug and be present with, with the people that they love, people who are starving, people who are, have been forced really by circumstances to live in a lifestyle that they don't even want to live, people who are just stuck and in pain. Those are the folks that Jesus is regularly engaging with. And what he's doing is he's saying, I see you, I hear you, I love you, and I'm bringing healing into your life to set you free. That's Jesus. The primary, the primary um, adjective that we could use to like, describe him is compassion. He is compassionate, which means that is who God is. And we are allowed to say, you know, God, I don't always see you that way, but that's who Jesus is. I'm choosing to trust the picture of Jesus. Show me how that looks as you as Father God, because that's the truth. That is your heart for humanity. And the biggest restoration, the biggest compassion move of God is the cross. Because the reality is the stuff that happens here on earth is always going to keep happening, right? Until this earth doesn't exist anymore. There's always going to be more brokenness, more pain, more accidents, just more grief. People are going to keep dying that we love. And so Jesus says, I'm, I want to fix all of your circumstances. If I could do that every day, that's all I would do because I really would love to. But you have free will, so you don't always let me. But what I can fix is your soul. What I can bring ultimate restoration to is the brokenness inside of you the internal pain and chaos that happens. And I did that by going to the cross. And Isaiah tells us, and I think it's just so important to hear this. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. Whole. God's going to the cross. Like, I don't know what story you heard growing up, but God's going to the cross is for your wholeness. He was willing to take all of the brokenness of the world onto his own body, into his own body, so that you could have peace of spirit in a chaotic and complex world. So that you could be anchored in the identity of knowing yourself as a beloved son or daughter in a world where you may have been abandoned by everybody else that's supposed to love you. So that you could know that you are worthy of dignity and respect and that he honors you when the rest of the world may not even acknowledge your existence. Jesus died to make you whole and a wholeness that you can experience here on earth and that will come to fullness in heaven. I love that part of Isaiah where he says, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. Isaiah had no idea what he was saying when he wrote that. He was thinking of exile and all of the things that were going to come up to that. But what we see is looking back a picture of what Jesus would do, where he inscribed your name on his hands. 
you are the most important thing in the world to God. Irregardless of your story, your background, your choices, you are the most important person in the world to him. He created you. He loves you. He knows your story. And he is fighting for you, advocating for you, broken when you walk through brokenness. No one else shows us that kind of loyalty. People come close. We've got some great friends or great spouses or just whatever. You have those people. But no one will ever show you the loyalty of God. He is 100%. He cannot forget you. He cannot. He is so compassionate, so emotionally bound to you that he cannot turn his back on you. It is impossible. As frustrated as he might get with the decisions that we make, he cannot reject you. Jesus took all of that, all of it, because God's only priority is setting you free, making you whole, and being in a relationship with you. To enjoy you. To help you come to the, cre- the fullness of what he created you for. And so the book of Job isn't written for Job to come to that conclusion. Because Job doesn't read his own book. It's written for us. So that we can realize that as we walk through suffering and the complexity of living in a broken world, our anchor, our theological anchor point can exist as God is compassionate and he is good. I don't have to understand or like any of the things going on in my life, but what I know is that God does not have to understand or like them either. I know he does understand them because he knows everything, but he isn't sitting up there disconnected from my suffering, celebrating it or behind it or any of that. He is with me in it, seeking my restoration and my wholeness. And that's what allowed Job to go back to a place of peace even when his world was still a mess. He said, I sit in dust and ashes before you because I realized you are far greater than I could ever understand and you are seeing me, hearing me, and loving me. And so I submit myself to you because that's the safest place for me to dwell while my world is falling apart. And so the question we have this morning, which I'll... I'll land here is then how do we experience or move into trusting God when we're suffering? If he's present and he's affected by my suffering, he's with me, all of that. How do I actually live into that reality? How do I experience him as trustworthy? And the answer, I sat on this for a while this week, I don't think is easy (laughs) because trust is vulnerable, right? And as much as we shouldn't necessarily use our external experiences to define who God is, we've got Jesus and he's perfect, a lot of our healing comes from experiences we have this side of heaven, specifically experiences with the church. Church is not perfect. The church has got a lot of stuff that they're dealing with. But God gave you and I this new family for a reason. We're a body We're supposed to be working together in a harmony that allows us to function and mutually serve one another so that we, our needs are met. And those aren't always physical needs like, oh, somebody helped me when my car was broken, which is beautiful. But sometimes it's emotional needs where it's like, I'm grieving and I need somebody to say, God is still good and he's with you in this and this situation stinks. They're not trying to gaslight you and pretend it's all good. They're just reminding you God is with you in this, this mess. So many words to fill in there. You have to add to your own imagination. He's with you in this mess. And he's grieved with you. He's affected by your pain. He is crying over the loss of that child. 
God didn't celebrate when he's like, oh, Sean's here. He's, he has taken your boy in and he's protecting him. But he wasn't like, oh, yay. God was at that funeral with us, crying in the seats with us because God grieves. Jesus cried when his friends died. Even though he knew, even though he knew they were up in heaven with God, God still grieves with us. And so being in community which is vulnerable and scary because we still hurt one another unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, because we mess up, we make mistakes, we're imperfect. And yet in all of that, this is where we learn what God's compassion is like. This is where we get to physically experience him as present in our pain, as a solid anchor when our life is falling apart is when we walk in the door and people hug us or they see us or they acknowledge us or they remind us you are worthy of justice. And they, they come and they, they walk with us and they experience life in the trenches. And it's in those moments with the church where we realize, God, you are here with me. It would be so nice if we could just go home, lock ourselves in the closet and be like, God, I just need to trust you a little bit today because things are falling apart. And he's like, bing, here you go. You're good. Like a, like a Skittles commercial, I guess. And the reality is that's not relationship. God says, dig in, find a group of people who are safe and trustworthy, imperfect, but safe and trustworthy so that they can show you what my heart is like over and over again. And so you can show up and show them what my heart is like over and over again. It is a bold call because God knows our propensity to mess things up. And yet he says, I have crafted and created this brand new community as a living picture of who I am. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He has given his spirit to each of us so that we can live in harmony with the Father, Son, and Spirit, doing what the Father is doing and releasing compassion to the world. And I think you guys are already doing this all the time. You just may not quite realize what it is behind you that's doing it. I, I couldn't stop writing the list when I started thinking about this, of Susanna going to France and working in refugee camps, of Terry and Krista reaching out and taking care of somebody in their building who was in a horrific situation of abuse. Um, now I've, I should have just kept my list in front of me, but uh, of Jen's compassion to invite people into her home when they're suffering, of Tim taking on a whole group of teenagers and just being present as a father figure for them if they need it, not forcing it, but just saying, hey, I'm going to say really hard things to you. I laugh when I hear him talk to them. I'm like, you have way more permission than you should. Like as far as them listening to you saying the hard things, he's like, why are you dating at 13? You don't need to be dating at 13. Stop dating. Don't start dating until you're 25. Um, and I just think that that's like, that is the compassion of God moving in us for one another. But you know what happens is when we have those conversations, people feel the heart of God. And they realize that he's really present and seeing them. And so I encourage you, I implore you to dig into this community or any faith community. It doesn't have to be this body of Christ. Find a body of Christ where you can be real and raw and vulnerable because that is how you will receive the compassion of God and know that he sees you. And it's also where you'll find the, the energy, the equipment, the opportunity to give it to other people who need it. We're going to move into ministry time now, which is just when we respond to what the Holy Spirit's doing. 
And I realize that today can be a raw and uncomfortable day. Like we're talking about trusting God and him when we're suffering, but I have been following Jesus since I was a younger child. I really committed in college, but I've, I've been attending a faith community for most of my life. And I am still blown away by how good God is. And my life's not perfect, and your lives aren't perfect. And I see most of the time people are like, ah, oh, pastors, your job's so easy. It's fine. <laughs> the reality is I hear the hardest parts of everyone's life. So I know looking around the room that things are not going well all the time. I'm not blind to that. And yet God continues to show me how good he is by loving you, serving you, speaking to you, doing miracles of healing or restoration. I've watched parents and kids start talking. I've seen people physically healed from things that are chronic. God is so for you. so for you. And so as we move into ministry time this morning, I don't know where he wants to go with that, but I'm just going to trust his heart. I know the prayer team's ready to roll. So we're going to invite the Holy Spirit. And I would just ask you, if you're able, would you just stand just so that you don't fall asleep, really? (laughs) It helps us to re-engage with the Lord. The Holy Spirit, you... radically good, God. You're radically good. 